Hello, hello. Good morning, Grace Life, and welcome to uh, Grace Life Church this morning. As we hear our fourth message in uh, Tommy's series on gospel culture, uh, I wanted to quote, or maybe it's requote, a short statement from Ray Ortland describing what a gospel culture is. People not only hear the gospel in the preaching and teaching, but they experience the gospel in the relationships and the tone and the culture of the church. If all they do is hear the message, they will not believe it. But if in hearing it, they also experience it in the people around them, then they might be shaken by that. They might actually consider that God is here. Consider Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another. It has welcomed you for the glory of God. So where in the world can we see and experience the glory of God in a social environment? A healthy church where people welcome one another. That's gospel culture. So we say to you this morning, to all who mourn, comfort to all who are weary and need rest to all who feel worthless and wonder if to all who fail and need strength to all who stand and need a savior to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness and to whoever else will come grace life church opens wide her doors in the name of jesus christ and offers welcome Father God, we are grateful for this opportunity to come and to praise your name, to lift you up in song and praises, and hear the message of your word. So we pray that you would be with our worship team and ourselves as we raise our voices and with Pastor Tommy as he brings us the message. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Grace Life Church. We pray that we would be true with the gospel culture here in this, in this place. Christ's name I pray, amen. If you would, stand with me this morning as we worship.
song is so simple but it's so true and it's so powerful um, <laughs> the other night I woke up at like two o'clock in the morning my son's in his room screaming as loud as he can 
he's yelling, Daddy, Daddy. And I walk in there and it was completely dark and he was scared. And as soon as I picked him up, he was okay. And that's how it is for us with God as our Father. We're surrounded by darkness and we're scared and we can cry out, Abba, Father. And he's right there to pick us up. He'll pick us up and he'll hold us. We are his children and he loves us. And he'll never leave us or forsake us, guys. So let's sing this next song in the position that we have as children of God. He is our father and he loves us. And whenever we call on his name, he's there to help us. So undeniable, I, I 
unexplainable lie I can hardly think as you call Deeper still as you call Deeper still as you sacrifice to cleanse us from all of our sins, Father. I pray for Tommy as he delivers this message, Lord. I pray that we can just be renewed by it, renewed by your word, left here filled with your word, Lord, filled with your Holy Spirit, and just go out into the communities and be the insiders for the outsiders, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Again, Grace Life, if you have your Bible with you or your device, uh, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, and I'll begin in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Kyle and worship team. And uh, thank you, Grace Life Church. Thank you for showing up every week. And I want to pause before I go any further. And I want to thank Jeff Carson. A lot of you guys may not know who Jeff Carson is because you usually don't see him. He is running all over the, well, you probably do see him. He's running all over the campus, unlocking things, turning things on, 
fixing things that are broken, accommodating our needs. Every request we sling at him, he always accommodates it with a smile. And brother, we appreciate you. You're not a member of our church, but he's a brother in Christ. And uh, I don't get to do this enough. Uh, just want to publicly thank you, Jeff, for all that you do every Sunday. He shows up early. He comes back later and locks everything up, and he, and he does it with a smile. That's his service to the king, and we're grateful for that. I know sometimes a person like Jeff and even a tech crew, uh, they don't get any attention until something doesn't work, right? <laughs> but most of the time when things do work, we're happy, and we forget to say thank you, just like the air today. Isn't it great to have AC again? And uh, yeah, amen. Thank you, Jesus, because we are praying, and, and thank you to the people that worked hard all week to get that thing turned on and get all the kinks worked out. We're, we're not the priority here. This is a school. 3,000 students go here, and 165 faculty members go here, and we rent this space for three hours, but I'm grateful that they care enough to make sure that the air in this room and in our classrooms work as well. So thank you, Jeff. Um, let me pause and pray, and we'll get started. Lord, thank you so much. For all the lyrics we just sang, how true they are. It's, it's who we are. We're loved by you. That is our identity. And so often we forget that, Lord. That sounds like poor grammar, that we are something that's done on our behalf, but it's really good theology. And it's something that can't be threatened or it's something we never risk losing, stand at risk at being robbed from us or deprived of it. Because it rests on your finished work and not on our achievements or performance. And we're grateful for that. May that doctrine, that truth, that reality sink deeper into our hearts this morning as we study this passage. And may you protect us all, Lord, from, from the threat of that. A gospel doctrine leads to a beautiful gospel culture. And Satan is always seeking to undermine both of those. Sometimes at the same time, help us to, to do what the sermon title today calls us to do. To be engaged in the long war. And to know what the heart of the battle is, Lord. It's our justification by Christ alone, faith in him alone. So help us to understand that today and empower us as we leave this place. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we're continuing our series called Culture Check. And I hope that you are as challenged and as encouraged and as hopeful as I am from this series. Because the culture of our churches, and we've talked about and defined culture. Culture is the unassumed practices of your church, things you don't really question. It's the unspoken law about the way things are done around here. You won't, we don't really talk about it, we just do it. It would be like water to a fish. It would be like the house smell that everybody else smells, but you don't in your house. That's the culture of a church. And culture is about relationships, how we treat one another, the vibe and the energy that takes place when you're in community with other people. And the culture of our churches should be head-turningly beautiful and stunning and attractive and compelling. And when that happens, your church is powerful. You've got good gospel doctrine over here, and you've got a beautiful culture over here, then that church will be powerful and united. And the world will lean in and listen up because even though they're offended by the message of the cross, they're very much attracted to the lifestyle that it produces when it's followed. The church will be a place where everyone wants to come and nobody wants to leave. It won't be like the DMV, you know, the Department of Motor Vehicles, where people are there because they have to be. Your license expired, you got a ticket, you don't want to be there, you're not happy to be there, nobody else is. The people that work there aren't happy about being there or about you being there. That's how a lot of churches feel. That's a cultural thing. It's I'm here because I have to be. My mom made me or Jesus will be angry if I'm not instead of I get to be here, I want to be here. 
God's there. <laughs> we show up because we're helped, and we meet with Jesus Christ, and we leave better than when we came. That's a healthy gospel church culture. And you feel like when you're there, that the living Christ has stooped down and kissed you on the cheek. That's how church ought to feel. But for a lot of people, they feel like they drove 30 minutes to get yelled at, you know? Jeff Eckert and I were in Russia a long time ago, before we were even uh, went to seminary. And we were young in the faith and excited and passionate about the new theology we were discovering. And I remember talking to a missionary there after explaining my convictions and my beliefs theologically. And he, his head was turning like, dude. <laughs> and Jeff and I talked to him afterwards. And we said, are you this? Are you that? Are you reformed? Are you? And he said, well, hang on a minute. He said, I'm a Christian, but I'm not angry about it. <laughs> and it took me decades to understand what he was trying to say. You ever met somebody that's a Christian and it seems like they're angry about it? It's like, dude, what are you angry about, man? I'm a Christian. I'm happy about it. It only took me 20 years to figure that out. But the sad reality of some churches is this. In concept, they preach the gospel. But in reality, they inflict pain. They've got great statements of faith on their website. They've got good, sound theology on paper. But in practice, it's not good. It's not healthy. It's toxic. The cultural air, the spiritual air is thick and heavy with oppressiveness and very harsh. If you pulled somebody aside and you gave them a theology test, they'd score 100%. We believe here Jesus is Lord, virgin birth, sinless life, sacrificial death, resurrection power. He's enthroned in heaven. The Bible is God's word. It's true. They'd score 100% on the test. But there's something not quite right with the culture. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've been a part of that. People can't quite articulate it. They just know something's off. Something's amiss here. Usually what's happened is that gospel doctrine, that good theology, that sound orthodox doctrine hasn't flowed into relational beauty. It's in the head, but it's not in the heart. And when that happens, it's very ugly. It's competitive. It's critical. It's exhausting. There's strife. There's secrets. The leadership is overreaching and heavy-handed and maybe an abusive and controlling and manipulative. People aren't walking in the light. It doesn't feel like a safe place to confess your sin. You feel like that will be taken advantage of or you would be exploited. You feel more like you're being watched than you're being welcomed. It's orthodoxy without compassion, is what Francis Schaeffer called it. And he said, by the way, that's the most ugly thing in a church, orthodoxy without compassion. Ray Ortland, in his book, Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ, said this. He said, if a message so good, the gospel, the good news, about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if a message so good lies at the defining center of our churches, why do we see such things, such bad things in those same churches ranging from active strife to sheer exhaustion. Where is the saving power of the gospel, he asks. Some churches preach the gospel in concept but inflict pain in reality. So we want the church, we want this church to be a place not only where people come and hopefully hear the message, hear the good news, hear the theology, hear the gospel, but they also see what the gospel does. This should be like the showroom floor the dealership test drive of the gospel. Yeah, we, we've heard the message, 
what does it actually do? Can it live up to the promises? Can it deliver on the promises it makes to actually radically change, transform people? When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. And people will want to be there, not because they have good coffee and the air conditioner works. It'll go deeper than that. That's not a dig on anybody that didn't show up, by the way. <laughs> a lot of people are on vacation this week, and some people were scared that had little children that the AC might not be fixed yet. But there's grace. And that's the thing. That's a culture. We're not keeping a tab. We're not keeping an account ledger of who's here and who's not. Unless you were supposed to teach one of the kids today, then maybe we'd give you a call or something, you know. <laughs> but no, a gospel culture is, man, they transcend all those trivial things. It's like uh, the Grinch that stole Christmas. You remember that? The Grinch thought, I'm going to ruin that city down there, Whoville. What did he do? He went and stole all the presents, the Christmas trees. You know the story, every Christmas, right? And then he, he goes up on the mountain and he goes, the maniacal laugh. He's waiting. He can't wait for those families to wake up and see that their Christmas has been robbed. And he hears every Who in Whoville singing. Why? Because Christmas is a lot bigger than just presents. And listen, guys, a gospel culture is much bigger then good coffee and an AC that works and even the types of music they sing, it's driven and shaped and empowered by a message that goes from here to here and there's relational beauty and it's a place you want to be. You, you'll meet God there. People are welcoming. We've already talked about that. There's love there and people are walking in the truth. People are honest. The gospel message, the doctrine has produced that culture. And you're going to hear today that gospel message is also what will preserve that culture and confront that culture when it gets out of step with the message. The church should represent a safe place, the safest place to rethink your life, to rediscover who God is, and to grow. And I think the church should be fun. And I know I've heard all the art. I went to theology and I heard the church shouldn't be fun. It's serious. But listen, I don't think, I don't think good theology has to mean you're cranky. Am I the only one? <laughs> Do you think Jesus, I know he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but he was carrying the burden of our sins too. I think Jesus shared some laughs with his disciples. I think Jesus was the most complete, the most full, and the happiest human being the world has ever seen. And I think we ought to be too. I think Christians ought to be the most enjoyable and genuine people to be around. They ought to be the best listeners. They ought to be the, the most deep and careful thinkers. They ought to be the hardest workers because they're not doing that to earn anybody's favor. They're doing it because they already have the favor of the one whose opinion matters the most. That's the doctrine we're going to talk about today. So we've already looked at several ways that a gospel culture shows the beauty of Jesus. It's welcoming and you're walking in the light. And in order to protect such a beautiful culture like that, you have to live in a constant state of war. And I know you're like, oh, war. I hate that word. I hate that thought. War's ugly, and it's hard, and it's dangerous. And, but it doesn't have to be. The war that we're going to talk about today is a beautiful thing. It's not necessarily a war that, that you're carrying out on other people. It's a war you're fighting in your own heart. You're fighting to believe the good news every single day of your life, every single minute of your life when it comes under threat from an outside pressure, right? That's what happened to Peter. So last week we began looking at this passage and I only got to the first two points and that's the beauty of being the lead pastor. I can just stop and pick back up next week, right? So that's what I'm doing today. I only got to the first two, point, two points 
the last one I just mentioned, and that's the good one. That's the powerful one. That's the one hopefully some of you came back to hear more about today. So let me mention the first two just to bring you up to speed in case you weren't here. We looked at this passage, and what's going on is Paul is writing a letter to the Galatian churches. Not one church, many churches in the region of Asian Minor that he helped to plant. Hasn't been very long since those churches came into existence, and they're already under a threat. There's false teachers that have gone out, and there's false teaching that has taken root, and these churches are in serious trouble. They don't know it yet. Paul knows it. Paul knows it. He knows that actually the Galatian churches are, if this was a cancer, it'd be stage four. And as you know, there's no stage five in cancer, right? They're at stage four. That's why this letter, if you read all the New Testament and all of Paul's letters, he almost seems lighthearted in some of them. How you doing? How's the family? I miss you. Can't wait to see you again. This letter, man, it's, it's very serious. He gets right to the point. He gets right to the point. That was point one. How easily, how quickly, and how strategically a gospel doctrine crumbles. Paul jumps right in this letter. He says, I am astonished. Here's an apostle who's seen everything, and he's blown away. He's astonished. He's struck out of his mind at how quickly these people have abandoned the gospel for something that's not the gospel. Listen to this. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's, that's chapter 1. He goes on to say, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Then he says, I'm perplexed about you. And then he says, I'm in anguish over you. Have you ever heard an apostle use language like that? I am astonished. I am afraid. I am perplexed. I am an ang I'm anxious. I'm in anguish. These are serious things for an apostle. Why? He's, he's concerned about this church, that it may not be there in five years. Why? Because the very culture that the gospel creates is under attack. It's crumbling. False teaching is infiltrated, and it's everywhere. The effects are everywhere in the relationships. They're under the enchantment of false teaching. That's why he says, you're bewitched. And Paul's trying to break the spell. He's trying to disenchant them. <laughs> I guess that's what it means to be broken if you're a spell, right? He wants to wake them up. How bad was it? It was terrible. Stage four. That was point one. Point two, how ugly, how toxic, and how unwelcoming a culture is when it begins to crumble and the gospel is attacked. I'm not going to reread what Steve read, but did you hear what happened? The apostle, the, the very beginning of chapter two, Paul talks about he... Paul went up to Jerusalem from Antioch to prove to these false teachers that, look, all the apostles are united. This gospel of grace, this gospel of faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, is how you're converted. It's how you're saved. It's how you're put right with God. Paul's saying, my doctrine, my gospel, and the other apostles, Peter, James, and John, we're not opposed to each other. That's what the false teachers were saying. They're like, well, Paul preaches grace, but you should go to Jerusalem and talk to Peter, John, and James, and you'd get a different story. Paul says, oh, really? Well, I'll go up there. We'll have a council. We'll have a conference. They did. You can read about it in Acts 15. And he came back and said, you see, they extended the right hand of fellowship and added nothing to my message. It's all the same. All well and good, right? Well, no, because then Peter came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and he hung out we don't know how long. 
But that's what chapter 2, verses 11 through 16 is about. Paul's telling them a story how the gospel culture has always been under attack. And he says, Peter came to Antioch from Jerusalem. And in the beginning, it was great. This gospel of grace, this justification by faith alone, it was everywhere in the relationships. You could see it. Peter's a Jew, but he's sitting with Gentiles who at one time were considered unclean. In the Old Testament, if you touched a Gentile, if you ate with a Gentile, if you hung out with a Gentile, you were unclean. You couldn't even go to the temple or the tabernacle to worship. But because of Christ, all those ceremonial, ritualistic cleansing laws, they're done away with. They were a picture, a shadow, a type of, of what Jesus would do for us spiritually. And now, you can eat whatever you want. You can have a bacon sandwich. You can wear wool and cotton together. You can eat at a Gentile's house. It's all good. So Peter came, and he started out good. He started eating with Gentiles, hanging out with them, going to their parties. And then some Jews came from Jerusalem, and they were checking Peter out. It was one of those, they were at their table with the Jews, and they were looking over at Peter's table, and they had a notebook, and they had a pencil. And on the outside of the notebook, it said, thoughts to take back to James in Jerusalem. And they were doing one of these, like, you ever feel like, do you ever feel under that scrutiny? Like, hey, hey, I do that to my kids watching you. Or maybe even this, there, there was like the slice neck, they're like, we see you, we see what you're doing, we're telling James, you're dead. And the pressure was too great for Peter. He caved, he cracked. What did he do? What's it say here? Check this out. Man, how does my Bible get open to Jeremiah when I was just in Galatians? All right. Here's what it says. When, Se when Cephas, that's Peter's name, by the way. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party is just another word for legalist, for false teachers. They're saying, you know, the grace of God is wonderful, and Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, and you can believe in him, and that's great. But if you really want to be a legit Christian... You need to, and there was a fill-in-the-blank, get circumcised, get baptized, be kosher, eat here, watch this, don't watch this, listen to this, don't listen to that, drink this, don't drink that, all that stuff. It's all symbolized by that word, the circumcision party. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Oh, now this has turned cultural. First, it was one man, Peter, but he's a significant man. He was an apostle. He raised people from the dead. He spent three years with Jesus. He preached the first sermon at Pentecost. He's been around. The more influence you have, the more responsibility you have, the more accountable you are. That's why James 3 says, let not many of you be teachers, brothers, knowing that yours will be the stricter judgment. Well, Peter was acting hypocritically. He wasn't teaching a Bible study. All he did was he ate at a different lunch table. Do you see how easily and quickly cultural hypocrisy happens. The gospel culture comes under attack. Well, all the Jews were carried away with his hypocrisy. He never told them to do this. They were just watching him. And then check this out. Verse 13, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Here's Barnabas, the son of encouragement, Paul's right-hand man, the people lover. He's carried away. Do you see how easily it happens? Nobody's teaching false things here. The culture is just crumbling because of one man's behavior being out of step with the gospel. Check this out. Verse 14. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, now hit the pause button there. I just mentioned this last week. This is so interesting to me because the word used there for out of step with the gospel is a Greek word that's orthopateo, not potato, but pateo or pateo, and it means straight walking. You go to the orthodontist to straighten your teeth. You go to an orthopedic surgeon to straighten your bones or whatever is, is out of alignment, right? Their, their life, Peter's life, was out of step with the gospel. Here's the gospel message. You are declared blameless. You're accepted. You're welcomed into God's presence because of what Jesus did. And now the conduct, the behavior of your life relationally, there's lines that go out through that message. There's lines that go to your life. How do you treat other people? How do, you, how do you spend your money? How do you view sex? All of that. There's straight lines that go out from the gospel. And Paul is calling Peter to task. This is the war. And this is the heart of the war. And he's saying, Peter, your conduct is out of step. It's out of alignment. And the whole culture is out of whack. Have you ever driven your car and one of your tires is out of alignment? Just one. Just one. And it's not a big deal when you're in town or you're pulling in your driveway, you're going through the neighborhood. Then you get on I-4. Where it matters. and it's, What happened? Your, t- your tire's out of alignment. And your whole car is vibrating. And before long, if you, if you're, are you like me? I just hate going to, I'm sorry, Sam. I hate going to mechanics, man. I do. Because I don't trust a lot of them. I trust Sam. He's a Christian mechanic. His mechanic is in line with the gospel, right? But most of them tell me, okay, we got, uh, this needs to be changed. This needs to be changed. $800. I'm like, dude, I came here to get an oil change. What are you doing to me? But no, if your tire's out of alignment, right, da, 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 Sam, bear witness. Won't, won't it ruin your whole car? It will Say yes, Sam. It'll ruin your car. Your axles will be bent before you know it. Your ceiling will be caved. <laughs> Peter's conduct was out of step with the gospel, and everybody was carried away, swept away in his hypocrisy. How you treat other people matters. And how you treat other people, you don't know this, because I don't know it, because we forget it. It's really shaped by how you believe you relate to God. It really is. It matters. And so Paul does something heroic. He does something courageous. And thank God he did. Or you and I may not be sitting here, may not have been sitting here today. Paul does. Can you imagine how hard it was to be the new apostle and to have to confront Peter, the rock, publicly in front of everybody? And he's not doing this to embarrass Peter or to shame Peter. He's doing this because the gospel is at stake. This is a war that has to be fought. And he says, he was, he was condemned. I withstood him to his face, and I did it in front of everybody. Why? Because everybody needed to see this and hear this. Man, this would have been like, ay, 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 clash of the titans, showdown at the OK Corral. I would have liked to have been there. Can you imagine Peter's temptation to say, who in the world do you think you are? I walked with Jesus. You just had a vision of him. I was there. I touched him. I hugged him. We cried together. I was in the garden. I saw him sweat drops of blood. Who are you to tell me my behavior is out of line? But he didn't. He didn't. I wish we had more data here about, man, how did Peter, but we know later, they're buddies. They're quoting each other. <laughs> Peter wrote two books in the New Testament. So those were the first two points. How quickly, how easy, how strategically the gospel is lost 
and then how ugly the culture looks when that happens. And then the third point that I just got to but didn't even uh, unpack was how uniquely, courageously, and endlessly we must fight for that. And I know every good writer says you're not supposed to use a bunch of adverbs. Bad writing is bad grammar. But those are all important. I'm just going to camp out on one, one of these for today. And then we'll be out of here. How uniquely, how uniquely Paul confronted this. Because i got to be honest with you. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, you know, that was a courageous thing that Paul did. Had I been there, I would have done it differently. Because it seems like Peter has this superiority complex. He's looking down on other cultures, other races or ethnicities, other people groups, other cultures. He's viewing himself as elite. This is cultural elitism. And it's like, Peter, 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 what are you doing? Come here, man. Come over here. Come on over here. Let's talk about racism, how it's evil, how it's sinful. Or let's talk about honesty. You're not being honest. Let's talk about pride. Let's have a Bible study on those things. Now, Paul mentioned the fear of man, and he mentioned the hypocrisy. But what's so interesting to me and instructive to me is Paul started talking about justification by faith didn't he? Is that odd? Does that seem odd to you? Paul starts preaching the gospel to Peter. <laughs> I mean, you got you to almost say, what the heck's going on here, man? Peter knew the gospel? If you would have pulled Peter aside, he would have scored 100% on the gospel test. And can I be honest? Can I get in your kitchen a little bit? I bet you would too. Was Jesus born of a virgin? Yes, pastor. Was he sinless? Yes. Did he ever sin in word, thought, or deed? No, no, pastor. Are you saved by grace alone? Yes. Or by your own works? Oh, no, my works play no part. All right, good, good. He would have scored 100%, but his behavior was out of step with the gospel. And so Paul takes him to school. I don't want to say he, he took him to the tool shed, because that's, really, that's not really what happened here. In fact, have you... Have you ever heard it said, I'm going to put him in his place? Have you ever thought that or said that or done that? (laughs) This is what's really astonishing to me. What Paul says is basically, I'm going to put Peter in his place, but the place that he puts him is incredible because he says, I'm going to put you in your place. You've forgotten your place. You're in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, bro. (laughs) You're, you're united to God. You have union with, with Christ. We reign with him. We're in the inner circle, man. We've been welcomed and accepted by Jesus. We're in his family. We're declared blameless. We fit. We belong. We matter. We're worthy now because of Christ. He doesn't try to shame him. He says, Peter, not only do you not have the right to look down on other cultures and people groups, you don't have the need. Why do you think you have to feel superior to them? Why do you think you have to be afraid of the opinion of the people in Jerusalem when these false teachers go back with their notebook and say Peter was eating with Gentiles? Why do you have to be afraid of that? The person whose opinion matters the most, God, he's already said you're lovely and declared you blameless. That's how the doctrine of justification trickles down and hits us where we live, right? Man, I've had, since I've studied this, I have seen this Everywhere in my life, in, in movies, and documentaries. I was at, at lunch with uh, Brent Carnathan the other day, and we were talking about justification by faith, and a song came on. And it was a person talking about how I want to belong so desperately, and I'm here, but I don't think I belong here. I'm a creep. <laughs> Maybe you've heard that song before. 
He says, I want to be special, but I'm a creep. I'm a jerk. I don't fit in. I don't belong. It's everywhere. This doctrine of what is justification? It's simply this. I am finally accepted and belong to God. Because all of our life is this quest, this hunt, this search to feel significant, to feel worthy, to feel loved, to feel embraced. And when we act out, it's because we have forgotten that. As a Christian, when you act out, it's because you have forgotten that. You've forgotten it, and you need to be reminded. That's why the doctrine of justification by faith alone is what Martin Luther said is the primary doctrine, the article on on which the church stands or falls. And through it comes the knowledge of all godliness, and that's why he said, I teach it to my people every single week, and I pound it into my own head. That's Martin Luther, the one who rediscovered the gospel and sparked the great, not the great awakening, but the great reformation. If he needed it, if Peter needed it, do you think maybe you and I need it too? I wonder so often, friends, when we're acting out, and I can say this as a counselor, God is continually teaching me when I counsel people, because here's what I do. Somebody shows up for counseling, and most people try and diagnose themselves, right? My problem is her. (laughs) Or my problem is just to communicate. Pastor, we just struggle to communicate, right? And very, very often, especially if I'm feeling tired, I'll just... I'll just start attacking that. Yeah, let's have a Bible study on communication because that's clearly the problem. 99% of the time, it's not. If, you, if you're a firefighter and you show up on the scene of this, of, of this building that's on fire, you know it's on fire, and there's smoke coming out of the windows, how, how will your rescue efforts go if you hose down that smoke? You keep, you keep the water on that smoke, man. You're attacking that smoke, man. You're, just, you're having at it with the smoke. How's that going to work? Now, smoke's dangerous. It can kill people and choke people. Smoke is more like of a cultural, it's, it's, it's a symptom. That's what I do so often when I counsel people, and it never helps them. They feel better because they've done something. I went to a counselor. You've got to find the fire. Until you find the fire, that building's still going to crumble, and people inside are still in danger, and they need to get out. So often, if you look deeper beneath that smoke and you find that fire, it's going to be an identity issue. Somebody is deeply and radically insecure, and they're trying to clothe themselves like Adam and Eve did with fig leaves, and it ain't working. That's the problem with anger 99% of the time. It's a person who is so deeply and radically insecure, they're looking for righteousness. They have to be right and raise their voice and put you down. This is everywhere in the Bible. Interesting. James chapter 1, when James says, my brothers... Let every one of you be slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to what? Anger. Got it. Got it, James. Don't be angry. And he says, hang on, I'm not done. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. What? No, I I got you when you were talking about angry and saying, don't be angry. But why would you start talking about righteousness? (laughs) Do you realize when you're angry, you know what it is? You're looking for righteousness. You have to be right. You've got to raise your voice, and you've got to put people in their place. And interestingly enough, right after that, James says, but with meekness, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. You know what he's saying there? This is a stop. For the people that think that James has no gospel in it, he's saying, with meekness, 
received the implanted word. Implanted, yeah, the word that's already in you, the seed is there. You just need to re-receive it. Well, what word is he talking about? All the Bible? No, just the part that's able to save your soul, just the gospel. Isn't that astonishing? Anger is a quest for righteousness, and you're never going to get... Have you ever... Anybody here ever gotten righteous through your anger? Let me answer that for you. No. But I can tell you what you've done. You've damaged relationships, if not destroyed them. You've put people at a distance, and you've made a fool out of yourself. But what you didn't get is righteousness. You want righteousness? Receive the implanted word. What's that? The gospel. It's the message of Christ. Died for your sins. He achieved it, and you received it. You didn't earn it. That's what justification means. It doesn't mean, hey, good news, you didn't fail. <laughs> Great defense, but you never scored. No, that's not, that's not justification. Here's justification. Good news, not only did you not fail, you scored 100%. <laughs> Here's your test score, 100%. It, you get the Medal of Honor pinned to your chest when Jesus did all the fighting. That's the gospel. So you don't have to go out and be angry. You don't have to be radically insecure. When I was a teacher, I caught students at a Christian school cheating. Guys, you should have seen me, man. I was like a ninja. I could catch any kid cheating. I took great pride in it. I don't care how little the font was on their cheat sheet. I mean, I've been there. I've done that. I could, I could, I could detect it. And man, I would, I would call them out. Good students. Not only was it a, a Christian school, there were good students that were intelligent and smart and capable. And I, would, I, I, I really resisted embarrassing them because I, I thought that would, that would fix them. I'll embarrass them. I'll make them good and ashamed and that'll fix them. No, I, I'd been there, done that. That didn't work. So I would call them out in the hall after class and I would say, hey, look, man, um, you spent more time on that cheat sheet apparently than you, you did studying for the test. <laughs> what is going on here, man? And I would lecture them about honesty and integrity and the dangers of procrastination and preparing early. And you know where that got me and them? Squat. Squat. That was not the problem. You know what the problem was most of the time? And when I worked at Walmart and caught people stealing, it was the same thing. A lot of wealthy people, I would catch stealing. And when we would pull them aside and the police would get there, their stories were astonishing. You know what it always was? A parent. I ha you don't understand. You don't understand, Mr. Clayton. I have got to make like a 90-something on this test. Why? So my mom and dad. Why? So I'll get into school. There's always this quest. Listen, when you are... When you receive this doctrine of justification by faith alone, faith alone in Christ, that means faith in Christ apart from anything you could do, apart from your success. Charles Spurgeon, when he would preach, he used to whisper to himself as he walked up the little rotunda thing to his lectern, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Tim Keller used to whisper to himself when he walked up to his pulpit, this is not my righteousness. This is not my righteousness. I desperately want people to love my preaching and love my sermons. But you know what? This is not my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. I desperately want every single seat in this auditorium to be filled up. I do. Every Sunday. Because dadgummit, what I say matters, right? <laughs> but that's not my righteousness. And if I let that be my righteousness, I'm going to be deeply insecure. I'm going to be troubled. I'm going to be, being around me is going to be like walking on eggshells. You won't know what kind of mood I'm in. If a lot of people showed up and I got some good texts, if not, 
apart from. You're justified by faith alone and Christ alone apart from your success, apart from your failure. So guess what? Success never goes to your head. Failure never goes to your heart. You're, made right. You're accepted by God in Christ apart from where you live, how many letters you have before or after your name, what degrees you have, how many kids you have, how many friends you have, how many followers you have, or the religious performance, how many verses you've memorized, how, how big your tithe is, how often you show up on Sunday, how many ministries you have. The doctrine of justification by faith alone puts an end to that. It puts an end to it. The quest is over. The hunt is over. You've gotten what you need. You've gotten the righteousness of, excuse me, of Christ. There is a, uh, a really significant and powerful scene in one of my favorite movies. You guys knew I was going to quote, quote a movie eventually, right? 1981, Chariots of Fire, won endless awards, that movie did. And you know the story, it's about the uh, China missionary... Eric Liddell, and he happens to be really fast. So he qualifies for the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris. And so does a friend of his named Harold Abrahams. And they're like two totally different athletes. Eric Liddell is a Christian, and Harold Abrahams is not. And at one point, Eric's sister's concerned for him. She thinks this whole Olympic thing, this athletic thing, is like pulling him away from his true calling. And they have this conversation in the movie, and you've probably heard this line quoted a million times. This is like one of the most quoted movie lines of all times. Jenny says, I'm concerned for you, Eric. And he says this. <clears throat> he says, Jenny, God made me for China, but he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You remember that? It's a great line. And it's true. Man, they do a great job in that movie. When you see Eric Liddell, he was called the Flying Scotsman, and he had this really quirky method and technique when he ran, he ran like this. But when he ran, you could almost see the joy of Christ in his face when you look at clips of him running and all that. And in the movie, the actor did a good job too. So running to him is not him earning anything. So the pressure is off. When he runs, it's a joyful thing. He enjoys it. It's God's gift to him. He doesn't have to prove anything. He has nothing to lose, nothing to prove, nothing to fear, right? Harold Abrahams is not a Christian in the movie. And there's this really powerful scene near the end, right before his race, the 100-meter or 100-yard dash. He is in the stretch room, and his trainer is like massaging his back, and he's looking at another athlete, a friend of his. And he says, contentment. You're the most content man that I have ever met. He says, I'm 24 years old, and I've never known contentment, ever. And he says, now, one hour from now, I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to look down that lonely four, uh, I'm going to look at that lonely one meter wide stretch. And I've got, this is the powerful part. He says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my entire existence. But will I? To me, that's the most powerful scene in the movie. It's powerful. <laughs> because you've got, this, you've got this athlete who's not a believer. And he desperately wants to, he even used the words, justify himself. What's that mean? It means I want to matter. I want to be worthy. I want to be important. I want to be somebody. <clears throat> and in order to be somebody and to matter and to be worthy, I've got to perform. I've got to achieve. I've got to win. The pressure's on. And in one hour, I'm going to go out there in front of the whole world, and I've got 10 seconds to prove that I'm somebody. Will I? I don't know. Will I? Will I win? Will I lose? And here's the funny thing. He does win. 
and he can't even enjoy it. <laughs> See, when Eric Liddell runs, he feels God's pleasure. When Harold Abraham runs, he feels pressure, like the David Bowie song, Under Pressure. You ever, do you feel pressure living your Christian life? You know what? Every single person that I meet and try to help that's struggling, usually underneath the smoke, the fire, is this issue with justification. It hasn't, the gospel penny, like in a, in a vending machine, it hasn't dropped yet. You know, you bang on it, you kick it, and finally, and then your soda or your drink or whatever comes out. The gospel coin hasn't dropped yet. This, doc, this doctrine hasn't sunk in. They feel pressure. That's what they feel. Radical insecurity. And that's why Paul is telling Peter here, check this out. He says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then here it is, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. If you are trying to matter and trying to feel worthy and trying to feel accepted by how obedient you are, your life is going to be so out of whack because it's so out of order. In fact, J. Gresham Machen, I think that's his name, he was an old scholar, and, and he wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians, and he said the whole book of Galatians can be summarized by this, order. He called it order, logical order or cause and effect. And, and guys, if you don't listen to anything else I hear, pay attention right now, okay? I'm going to summarize the whole book of Galatians and the problem that a lot of us have. Here's, here is the right order, okay? You believe in Jesus Christ, and you're saved. You're justified right then. And then you can obey out of that declaration. You can obey with joy, with gratitude. So you believe, you're saved, and you obey. Here was the problem that Paul was addressing in Galatians. They had gotten that out of order, and it created all kind of religious havoc. They believed this. You believe, you obey, and you're saved. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds right to us because we're a works-based. You go to work, you clock in, you work 40 hours, you get a paycheck. You study for a test, you take the test, you get a good grade. That You earn that. That's your wages. We get that. We think that way. We're naturally wired to think that way. And that's why the gospel is so counterintuitive and so radically offensive to people. <laughs> because what you do doesn't earn you anything with God. In fact, Isaiah would say this. Your righteousness, when you offer it to God as a means to be accepted, it's like filthy rags. It's putrid. It's disgusting. It's vile. It's rank. It's offensive. So the Galatians had gotten the order of their salvation wrong. And this is not something slight or marginal that you adjust. This is the difference between religions. <laughs> Most people in the world believe that. You believe, you obey, and you're saved. In fact, you can find two people sitting in a pew. I use pew because it has a religious connotation. Two people are sitting in a pew. They're both trying to obey. They're both trying to live a Christ-like life. They're both trying to resist temptation. 
they're reading their Bible, they're serving, maybe they're giving a donation or a, or a tithe, but they are obeying for radically different reasons with radically different motivations to radically different ends. One is doing it out of gratitude and with joy, with pleasure, so to speak. The other one, the other one out of guilt. And hopefully it's enough. Hopefully I'll read my Bible enough today. Hopefully I'll give enough money. Hopefully I'll witness to enough people. Hopefully I'll be loving enough. That's performance-driven Christianity, and I'm telling you right now, when that enters into a culture, it will wreak havoc. It will be a fragile culture where people feel watched, not welcome, where people feel like they're walking on eggshells, they're neurotic, they're suspicious, they're critical, and they're radically insecure. <laughs> Maybe you've known that before. I certainly have. I've been a part of that. I've, I've produced that. Apart from our grade, apart from our performance, we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone. That is why when people get a hold of self-help books that have Christianese language in them, it scares me. It, it grieves my heart because it, Jared Wilson said this the other day. He said every single year, thousands of new, fresh self-help books will come out. Do you know why? Because the thousands that came out last year didn't work. <laughs> They didn't work. And they're packaged as Christian, Christian literature. And you open them up and you start reading them and they say, they say things like this. You're enough. You're it. You're awesome. Now, we want to hear that, don't we? I mean, guys, come on. I want to hear that. Do you? Don't you want to hear how awesome you are? I do. So if I can read a book that's got a Christian stamp on it that says that, I'm all about it. Here's the only problem. That's a lie. You're not enough. Now, hear me out, okay? Hear me out. You are not enough, and you never will be enough. And if you're banking on that cure, you are going to hurt people, and you're going to hurt yourself. Maybe not with a knife or a gun or something, but you're going to be a very hard person to live with because you need to let the declaration that God made over your life because of Jesus, he is enough. He's enough. And when you believe that and, you've, and you know that you're welcome based on his performance, not yours, the pressure's off. And you say, Tell people that. You've got to keep them a little bit in limbo. You've got to scare them. You've got to give them a good lashing on Sunday so they'll stay in step. Really? <laughs> I just, I don't, chapter and verse, I, I just don't see that. I think the people that are the most excited about obedience and keeping the law of God and honoring Christ are the people that, that the most deeply feel and understand their justification by faith alone. It's certainly been a radical shift in my thinking. And I'm going to give you a story, and then I'm going to close, okay? Because you love it when I give you my dirt. So I like to write. I write sermons. I write blogs. I write short stories that are stupid, that my family doesn't even enjoy some of them. Anyway, um, writing's important to me. It's part of what I do. I love putting words together. I love refining and editing and all that. Um, so I write a blog for our, our church, for our website. And Megan posts our blog every, what, Wednesday or so? Megan? And man, I, I enjoy writing it. I, I, God made me, uh, how could I quote Eric Liddell? When I write, I feel God's pleasure. You know? When I write, I feel God's pleasure. Well, there's a, there's a Christian blogger named Tim Challies. And before anybody else was blogging, he was, like 20 years ago. 
When you could like, the day that you could start a Christian blog, he started one. And he has blogged every single day for years. Like thousands of blogging. And he's an incredible writer. And so his website generates a lot of interest. Um, and he has featured something every day called a la carte. And he puts the best of the best blog articles on that page and features them. <clears throat> now, enter Tommy Clayton. <laughs> a nobody, a no name. Just a little dinky church plant in Florida, right? Who, when he writes, he feels God's pleasure. But I'm insecure too. And you know what would be great? If Tim Challies would feature my blog on his a la carte. Then I'd be somebody, man. I would matter. I would feel special and important. And so I thought, how can I make that happen? I can, I can write really good blog articles. Well, I've, I'm writing the best I can. I'm still not, he's still not featuring my blog. What the heck, Tim? I know what I can do. I can write him a letter. <laughs> That's what I'll do. All right. I mean, how messed up do you have to be? How insecure do you have to be to, to think this way? You got to know your pastor's messed up, okay? So I write, I met him once when I was in California. I'm like, hey, Tim, what's up, buddy? How you doing? Hey, I got a blog. Will you feature it? <laughs> it wasn't that, it wasn't quite, it was more subtle than that. And so I wrote him a letter and he said, hey, thank you. I'll check it out. I checked the a la carte for the next two weeks. Nothing. So I, I waited until I had a blog. I'm like, this, this is really going to blow his socks off. Hey, Tim, I know you're busy guy. Hey, I wrote another blog. Nothing. Hey, thank you. I'll check it out when I get time. I'm like, man, I'm a terrible writer. Like, how much weight did his opinion carry for me? So a couple of weeks ago, I wrote one, and I'm like, you know what, man? I'm just going to give it one more shot. By the way, in the, in the meantime, my wife picks up on this, and she says, honey, what are you doing? And I was embarrassed. I'm like, nothing. You don't, you don't get it. You're not in the writing world. And she said, honey, what are you? Stop writing. Stop bothering him. He's busy. And she said, honey, God loves you too much to let Tim Challies feature your blog on his page. He loves you too much for that. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right, but shut up. <laughs> so a couple of weeks ago, I wrote Tim Challies, and I said, hey, look, man, I'm not going to bother you again, um, but here's a blog that I wrote. And lo and behold, man, lo and behold, he features my blog on his a la carte. And you, do you, do you want to know how thrilled I was and how excited I was? And do you want to know how long it lasted? About 10 minutes. Seriously, about 10 minutes. Because then I realized, oh, that's, that's the weekend, that's the Saturday edition. That's like the leftover that he never, seriously, guys, I, and I'll tell you that to tell you, to tell you this, if you're on that quest to find satisfaction and meaning and worthiness, uh, it will crush you. It will, it, you'll never measure up. It's an endless quest that you'll get crushed by or you'll crush somebody else. But if, on the other hand, you'll look to Jesus, who was crushed for us, the Bible says, right? He was crushed for our behalf. The Bible says he died to atone in Romans 4, and he rose to justify our justification rests on what he thinks, not what anybody else thinks. The order matters. You believe, you're saved, you're justified, and your obedience flows out of that. It's not the other way around. That will mess us up so badly if we let it. People do crazy, crazy things to feel justified. Do you know that? People jump off bridges and they have midlife crises and they take their own life. People do crazy things because this doctrine, this beautiful gospel doctrine has it sunk down into their hearts. And when it does, man, it creates a beautiful culture. 
where you are not radically insecure, you're radically secure in Christ because of who he is and what he did. That's the message for today. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for, for these truths that we can rehearse today. And I pray that this would sink down deeply into the unevangelized parts of our soul and our, and our being, Lord, where the gospel hasn't taken root. May we do what James said. May we receive with meekness, with humility, the implanted word which is able to save our souls. May you aim this truth today, Lord, not at the smoke, but at the fire, that fire that burns, Lord, that wants to matter, that wants to feel loved, and wants to feel special, and wants to belong, and wants to be legit and vetted. Lord, may we know we have all those things and more, and we have them because of Jesus, and we have them in a way that is risk-proof. They can never be threatened or robbed. We can never be deprived of them. And may that make us the, the happiest, the most joyful, the most secure, the most risk-taking, the most gospel-carrying people in the world. May the world look in and see our unity, see our joy, see our love, see that we can be honest with each other, we can confess sins. This is a safe place, Lord, because it's so grounded and rooted in the truth of the gospel. May that be true of every single person here today. Lord, and I pray again, as I did earlier, I pray if there's somebody here and they've never tasted that even for the first time, they have never understood that they are made right with God only through the perfect obedience of Jesus, through his death, through his atoning substitutionary death, and through his resurrection. Would you convict them of that sin today, Lord? Would they repent of trying to earn your favor? by their own obedience and offering you this filthy righteousness. May they repent of that and throw that away, Lord, and cling to the righteousness of Jesus. Confess their sins. Acknowledge, Lord, they are not able to keep your law and that they deserve wrath, they deserve punishment for disobeying you. And may they cling to Jesus and confess that you are Lord and you are their Savior. Jesus is our example will crush us. Jesus as our Savior will rescue us, Lord. May you rescue people today, Lord. And may you rescue us again, those of us who have drifted, Lord, not because we've lost our salvation, but because we can lose our joy and we can do great damage to the culture that we're a part of, wherever that is, even our family, our businesses, our fellowships, our communities, and our churches. Thank you for this amazing church, Lord. Help me to not mess it up. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's what we're going to do. After the message, we always have a Selah, that we get that from the book of Psalms. Sometimes the psalmist will write a powerful truth, and then he'll say Selah, and that just means take a break, take a pause, breathe, reflect, ponder, and so we do that. After a sermon, we take just a few minutes, the band plays quietly, and we have a team back here led by Christy today, um, Christy and her husband, Bill, and this is your time. If you just want to pray with somebody, if you want to confess a sin, If you want to ask a question, this is your time. You can come back there. Nobody's going to watch you. Nobody's going to judge you. This is a safe place to confess your sin and to be real and to ask for help, to be weak, to be vulnerable. And especially if maybe you've misunderstood what the heart of the Christian message is and you want to know more about this salvation, this good news, or maybe you want to join the church and become a member, or maybe you need to be baptized, maybe you have believed the gospel but you have never taken the opportunity to publicly identify yourself with Jesus and say, I'm not ashamed. I'm his and he's mine. And I want to publicly show the whole world that truth. And you can come and talk to us and we'll we'll schedule that for you.
that the band's going to play, and then I think Megan or Diane is going to come and share some announcements and dismiss us. And if you're watching from home today, thank you, and you can take this time to reflect too. We're grateful for you joining us, and we look forward to the time when we can all regather in person and be the visible, united body of Christ without the separation of cyberspace. Amen.
Kyle. Just a few announcements for you guys today. Um, this upcoming week, the Central Florida um, Pregnancy Center Thrift Week is going on. Um, they wanted to have an appreciation program for their partners. Um, and so if you uh, choose to shop at the Central Florida Pregnancy Center resale shop um, this week, the 18th through the 22nd, um, and you let them know that you are with Grace Life, 15% um, of those sales will be um, given towards ministries here. Um, and then we'll actually be giving uh, that back to them as well. So if that's something that... Um, and they don't know that, so don't mention that at the checkout. Um, but... Uh, that's something that you'd like to uh, participate in that's happening this week. And then all month also to help support our partners at the Pregnancy Center, we'll have the baby bottle change drive going on um, all through the month. So if you want to grab a baby bottle from the lobby and fill it with um, any spare change that you have, um, all of that will go towards um, helping with uh, counseling, uh, support, resources, ultrasounds, all for uh, families in this community that need um support for any pregnancies that they experience. Um, and then at the end of this month, we've got our fifth Sunday service. Every fifth Sunday in the month, um, we all celebrate with a, a family-style uh, service. All ages um, will be in the worship center um, with us. And then um, we'll also be recognizing any new members, uh, child dedication, um, also during that time. So if you are interested in having your child dedicated or um, being baptized or becoming a member, you can send me an email at contact at gracelifeflorida.com um, and I will get you that information. And then if you want to stand with me, um, we will say our charge together. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.